Over the years, we've come to call these opening verses of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Isn't that right? These are the Beatitudes that come from the word for blessing. The repeated word in the Greek New Testament is makarios, or in the plural, makarioi. And it literally translates as blessed ones. The ancient Greeks originally referred to this particular term uh, in terms that identified with a vision of that state of blissful contentment enjoyed only by the gods. To be blessed was to be in that state the gods enjoy, uh, separated from the cares of this world, above the, the rustle and din and clatter and the worries of this life. Only truly are the gods uh, said to be blessed in this way. Over time, however, the term makarioi came to be applied as well to those who are just a little lower than the gods. Namely, the wealthy elite of Greek society was called the blessed uh, ones. Uh, the blessed ones there were ones whose money and power kept them above the worries and the work of this life and therefore qualified them as especially blessed. To be makarios, in other words, was always to be identified with the high and the mighty, whether the gods or, or the wealthy. To be someone who was beyond life's stresses, beyond its strains and pains. Eventually, the word makarios simply came to mean happy. Happy as in carefree, worry-free. In fact, well-known preacher Robert Schuller popularized this particular definition of the word in a book about this text entitled, The Be Happy Attitudes. Oh, to be blessed. Oh, to be above the strains and stresses of this world. Oh, to be happy. It is with this background that we look this morning at what Jesus actually said about the subject of blessedness. Because the reality is, what Jesus says to us in the Beatitudes can seem sort of confusing if your definition of blessing is happiness. I mean, when we read the catalog of people that Jesus says are blessed here, it does not sound like the happy list, does it? In fact, the poor, the grieving, the meek, the hungry seem much more like the Hard list, much more like the hardship list, if you think about it. Who in the world would possibly want these things? Who would possibly desire the curse of being blessed with hardship like that? Can you see why this particular text often puzzles people? The reason that it does is primarily because we do not understand this word blessed in its original and proper context. Jesus, you see, was not speaking of blessedness in the Greek understanding of that term at all. He wasn't speaking Greek. He wasn't preaching to the Greeks at this particular time in his ministry. He likely gave this sermon in Aramaic, a variation of Hebrew. And he delivered this sermon to Jewish people. For the Hebrews, the word makarios, or blessed, held a very, very different meaning than it did to the Greeks. In Hebrew, the word uh, makarios, or blessed, does not mean to be happy at all. It doesn't mean to be happy in the giddy or carefree sense of the word. Makarios, or blessed, means 
literally to be in the right path. To stand in the right path. What kind of a path? The path that draws one closer to God. What Jesus is giving us here at the front of the Sermon on the Mount is a catalog of those particular conditions and circumstances of life where someone, maybe you, maybe somebody that you know, might actually feel fairly unhappy. And yet it is these very conditions, says Jesus, it's these very circumstances which can place a person in the right path to drawing closer to God. All of the radically different ways of living that Jesus will go on to describe in the Sermon on the Mount are actually impossible to live out if one is not close to God, if one is not near to God. And so Jesus is trying to say to us at the very front end, here are the kind of circumstances and conditions that will get you in the path to get so close to God that he can lift you up and take you places that you could never go on your own strength. That's what Jesus is getting at with the Beatitudes. So let's sit a bit with this idea this morning, if you will. We're going to cover the second half of this text next week. But I invite you this morning to just look with me at the four opening Beatitudes and ask ourselves, how do these conditions possibly put us in the right path to get closer to God? How do these things that seem like such unblessings, like such curses, in fact, actually place us in the pathway of our God? Well, the first, says Jesus, the first condition that puts us in that path is when we're poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to have little left of your own spirit to give to anyone. It is to be at that place in life's path where the passions that may have previously fueled you and sustained you are largely gone. Your inner fuel tank is bone dry. You've tried every self-help strategy you can think of, but hope has given way to depression and maybe depression to despair, to a dull, aching emptiness that nothing seems to fill. And some of you are poor in spirit like this right now. You're at the end of your resources. And it feels like a curse. And Jesus says that in this very moment, you are actually closer to the kingdom of heaven than you are at many other points of your journey. Why? How could that be? It is because when there is nothing left of your will and your resources, there is nothing left to block God from pouring into you his resources. God is never so determined to come close and act on our behalf as when we feel 
that there is no resource left for us to draw upon. Where, the, where God is concerned, desperation is the doorway to inspiration. And if you are there right now, if you're at the end of the tank, if you're at the bottom of the well, I urge you simply say to him, God, come in, please fill me up with the riches of your life. And he will answer that prayer. He will fill you with the kingdom, with the very presence of heaven. If you come to him in that place. Jesus says also that there is a second avenue by which we draw close to God and he draws close to us. Those who mourn, says Jesus, are in the right path for they shall be comforted. I believe that there are more people sitting in this room today, around you today, who are in a place of mourning, in a place of grieving, than is evident with our eyes. Garrison Keeler, host of Public Radio's Prairie Home Companion, once commented on his own son's pattern of sitting up in his room just listening to the strains of heavy metal blues music blaring on the stereo, singing out a song that seemed just so wrenchingly sad, says Keeler. Where did he learn that, wonders Keeler. I give him enough money, he writes. I'm a nice dad. We get along well. I give him lots of things. He does well in school. Where's he get this anguish? Where's he get this anguish? And then Keeler hits the nail on the head and he says, I guess we all got it someplace inside of us. At any given moment, Many of us are mourning some loss, some change, some pain, some departure that brings up in us this sense of anguish. I I sit here so often on Sunday mornings and I look out and because you privileged me with the opportunity to know some of your stories, I wonder, does anybody sitting next to that person have any idea what they're coping with? They're the person's around us whose, whose mourning comes from the loss of a loved one who's just not there any longer, who's died and left them behind to pick up the pieces. There are people whose body is letting them down, no longer supplying anything like the stability it once did. And they're mourning the loss of capabilities that are not coming back in this life. There are people who are mourning the dying or the death of a relationship that once sustained them. A marriage that's dead or it's gone. There are people who are mourning financial reversals and and losses of of, of key mentors in their lives. There are obviously those who mourn the, the shattering of their life through natural disasters. There are children who starve and who die. And we feel this anguish inside of us. We're united, whether we're black or white or rich or poor. We're united by this anguish of mourning that is the human experience. That is inseparably a part of what it means. To love and to lose. So how does Jesus say that those who thus mourn are blessed? How? In what sense? When we're mourning, are we in the right path? 
The answer may be because when we feel grief, we are much closer to feeling what God feels every moment of every day. I know that there are many who conceive of God as some uncaring, unfeeling, distant deity. I know that there are others who see him as an angry, fist-shaking sort of being. But Jesus shows us the weeping God. Jesus introduces us to the God who anguishes over the pain of people. Jesus brings us into the presence of the God who, who weeps over the lostness of humanity, who aches over the brokenness of the creation, who, who writhes in pain over the distortion and lostness of this world. And so every time you experience mourning of your own, every time you shed a tear in pain, you are actually drawing closer to this God. You are in the right path to actually start to feel what he feels, to feel his presence at a deeper level, to know something of his arms that now wrap around you, joining you in those sobs, waiting with you for the day of resurrection to come. And if you are mourning today, beloved, if you are grieving today, this I promise you, you are not alone. Many of us are with you. Most importantly, he is with you. And though it is unhappiness, you are in the right path to find intimacy with him. And then there are also the meek. They too are in the right path, says Jesus. And they shall inherit the earth. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, let me ask you. Have you ever been in a position of conflict with someone over whom you had some power? You knew something about them. You had a capacity to withhold something from them. You had the ability to deal out something to them. But in spite of the fact that your ego perhaps spurred you to press that advantage, you chose not to. You chose not to do what you could have done. Have you ever been in a position to take credit for some achievement, but you refused to step into the limelight because it seemed more important to lift somebody else up, to see someone else get the attention? Have you ever been faster and stronger than somebody else at anything? You could so easily have done that thing or gone that place, but you chose not to. You chose to slow yourself down. You chose to gentle your touch down so that you could walk by somebody else's side instead of racing ahead or towering over them. Have you ever been in that place? If you have, if any of these scenarios are familiar, then at some point you've been meek. You have been exercising what the Bible calls meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not timidity, as we come to define it too often today. Meekness originally meant 
power restrained. Great power restrained. And just as we get closer, I submit to you, just as we get closer to the mind of God when our own resources are impoverished when we're poor in spirit, just as we get nearer to the heart of God when we mourn, we are rarely nearer to the absolute strength of God than when we are meek, when we are playing second fiddle, when we have chosen the back row, when we've been consigned to the servant's shadows. We are in the right path in those moments. For God shows his awesome power most most clearly, in his loving restraint, in his refusal to demand, to destroy, to judge, to control people when he certainly could. And if that sort of meekness is characteristic of the way that you deal with people, if that sort of meekness is the way that you are living your life right now, and sometimes it's hard to live that way, you know that, you feel the strain of playing this role, but if that's true, you are in the right path, you're in the path of the king, And you are the kind of person, says Jesus. You are the kind of person to whom my Father in heaven bequeaths authority. You are the sort of person that will inherit this earth. Jesus says that there are four sorts of people, sorts of conditions, circumstances, that God promises to draw especially near. There are those who are spiritually poor, whose tank is empty. There are those who mourn, who feel the anguish of this world. There are those who are meek, who voluntarily stay in the back seat, the second place, the servant shadows. And finally, there are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, says Jesus. They, they are in the right path and they shall be filled. You know, on this journey that uh, some of us recently took to Southeast Asia, we met some remarkable people. And one of the individuals that stays in my mind was a man from Beijing. For many, many years, this man had been an atheist. He was a a university professor at one of the prominent uh, educational institutions in Chinese, in the Chinese capital. He was a highly respected man. He was a reasonably affluent guy. In the world's terms, you'd have to say he was well-fed. When the bloody massacre at Tiananmen Square unfolded many years ago, however, this man got in touch with a hunger that he had not previously realized he had. He found himself absolutely awestruck at the extraordinary courage and conviction of those Christian students whose desperate determination to fight for religious freedom led them to stand up in front of those tanks and those soldiers as they bore down upon them. What do I hunger and thirst for that much? This man may have wondered, what do I hunger and thirst for so much that I would actually go to those kinds of lengths to get it and to stand up for it? And that question, as it turned within his soul, was the beginning of his conversion. 
Today, that man is one of the lay leaders of an 800-member house church that meets for worship every single week in the capital of China. On many weekdays, he travels down now from Beijing to Hong Kong to attend a Ph.D. program at the China Graduate School of Theology that we support. He wants to equip himself to be an even better disciple and leader for the Christian cause. He hungers and thirsts to be more like Jesus. He thirsts for a greater knowledge of the Master's way. And he is just one of literally millions of dedicated Christ followers who more than the media will ever tell you are slowly reshaping the heart of China. That's a good thing, isn't it? That our bankers are are growing in Christ. We want Christian bankers. We met so many people who were blessed in this way on our trip. I think of the woman that we met who was our tour guide in Hong Kong who used to head up the entire civil service of Hong Kong. 200,000 people reported to her. Now she has devoted her life to growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ and works in just one of the little departments at China Graduate School of Theology to help other people grow up in Christ. I think of the children we met in a refugee camp along the border with Burma, living in absolute squalor, but they get themselves up, little children at 6 o'clock in the morning, to go off to the Bible school that is the radiant center of that camp. They're memorizing the scriptures and earnestly seeking the way of Jesus. And it was just an awesome and a humbling and a convicting thing to meet so many people who were pursuing Christ-likeness, pursuing righteousness with the sort of hunger and thirst that I too often just associate with lunch. How about you? How about you? What, for what are you hungry and thirsty? As Greg Ogden reminded us last month, no one ever became like Jesus because they thought they should. You have to want it. You have to hunger and thirst for it. Our nation our communities, our families, our churches. They need people who want to become more like Jesus, who want to live out the values of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the question is, do you want it? Do you want it enough to do something different in the months ahead than you've been currently doing? To take up a spiritual discipline you haven't been practicing? To join a class to equip you? To get in a a group and journey with some spiritual partners? To pursue some counseling if you need that? To serve in a ministry where your gifts are needed? To share your faith with somebody at school or at your workplace or in your neighborhood or invite somebody to some church nearby you so they can grow in Christ? And I ask you this question because the promise of God to me and to you is every bit as serious as the one he made to that professor in Beijing. Jesus says, if you'll hunger and thirst after my way, after the kingdom of God, I will fill you up. I will fill you up. So on our way out today, here's the question. What do the Beatitudes, even this first part of the Beatitudes, what do they really have to teach us? Well, here it is in a nutshell. If it feels like a curse to you 
that your inner tank is empty and that you're poor in spirit, if it, if it feels like a curse to you that you've suffered a terrible loss and you're in mourning, if it feels like a curse to you that you're barely exercising the power that you could because you're in a position of meekness, if it feels like a curse to you that there is an ache in the pit of your soul for something more than you've been feeding on, maybe, just maybe, you're not actually accursed. Maybe. Maybe you are Makarios, blessed, standing in the right path to draw closer to him. God may be drawing you into his life. And if you will come, if you will trust, if you will persevere, if you will open yourself up, if you will take the next step, then in due season, beloved, Jesus promises that the kingdom and the comfort and the earth and the very infilling of God will be, will be yours. Please pray with me. Lord God, we have seen so many other kingdoms come and go in this world. We've seen how fickle they are. We've seen how tumultuous the results of their values. And we want to be people who exhibit the character of your kingdom, who advance your kingdom. We know, Lord, that there is no way to soak those values up to live that vision out short of drawing closer to you. And it scares us. It humbles us. To hear this message that to get that intimacy may mean going down paths we often fear. And so when our spirits are drained of all resources, enable us to believe, Lord, that you have the refreshment we need. When our hearts are mourning over the anguish of pain and loss and change, Help us to feel your comforting arms, which never leave us alone. When our ego seems denied by relegation to a place of apparent powerlessness, awaken us to the knowledge that in such meekness we are imitating you. And when there is within us, Lord, a gnawing hunger and a clawing thirst that nothing in this world satisfies, remind us in that hour that the only thing which finally fills, is you. For we offer these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.